Last week, I described the events of Mark chapter 12 in terms of a public school setting in which the classroom environment has turned hostile. Mark 12 takes place in the temple precincts, the classroom, and records three interactions between Jesus, the teacher, and the Jews, the students. Now, certain influential members of the class have turned on Jesus and are determined to undermine his authority, to discredit him in the eyes of the rest of the class, and ultimately to destroy his career. But Jesus is the master teacher, and he knows how to handle these classroom disruptions. He maintains total control over his classroom, dealing deftly and authoritatively with each interaction, with each disruption, silencing the troublemakers while simultaneously instructing the disciples. It is a masterful thing to watch. Now, those who are causing the trouble and forcing these interactions are comprised of three distinct groups. The first group that come up to Jesus are the Pharisees. Now, these Pharisees, as we saw last week, are the Jewish purists who resisted the cultural, moral, and theological compromise which resulted from centuries of Greco-Roman influence upon Israel. And it was their aim to reform Judaism and to bring Israel back to the Torah and back to faithfulness to the covenant. Now, the Pharisees had the utmost concern for ritual and ceremonial purity. They accepted the whole of the Torah, okay, not only the law, but also the writings and the prophets as authoritative scripture, as well as the halakha, which are called the tradition of the elders. This is centuries of rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament. They affirm divine sovereignty, they affirm the existence of angels and of demons, and they affirmed a future resurrection of the dead and a time of eternal reward or eternal punishment. The synagogue was their chief domain. The second group that come to Jesus in verses 18 to 27 are the Sadducees. These are the wealthy and powerful Jerusalem aristocracy who controlled the temple and the priesthood. Now the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees who accepted the the entirety of the Torah, the entirety of the Old Testament, the Sadducees accepted only the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because of this, their doctrine was way off. They denied divine sovereignty, they denied the existence of angels and demons, and they denied a future resurrection with eternal reward and eternal punishment. This week, we're going to meet the third group that caused Jesus such trouble, and these are the scribes. The scribes were the official ordained experts in the Torah. They were highly educated, they were highly esteemed among the people, and they were entrusted with interpreting, teaching, and applying the Torah. Now, many scribes were Pharisees, and most were aligned with the Pharisees theologically, but the two, the scribes and the Pharisees, were not one and the same group. Scribe was a profession, while Pharisee was a political or theological party. So the Pharisees reigned over the synagogues, the Sadducees controlled the temple, and the scribes ruled the scriptures. Together, these three groups controlled the religious life of Israel. In fact, 70 representatives plus the high priests of 71 total from among these three groups comprised the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Israel. And it was the Sanhedrin which was responsible for handing Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. And so it was that during the week of Passover, each group sent representatives to test the teacher, 
to trap him in his teaching and to discredit him in the eyes of the Jewish crowd. Mark 12 records these three exchanges. First came the Pharisees, who along with the Herodians questioned Jesus on the issue of taxation. This is verses 13 through 17. They hoped either to get Jesus in trouble with the Jewish crowd if he affirmed Rome's right to tax Israel, or else to get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities if Jesus denied Rome's right to tax Israel. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus responded brilliantly by calling for a denarius, getting the Pharisees to admit that it bore Caesar's image, just as human beings bear God's image, And then he said, render to Caesar, therefore, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's, thereby escaping the false dilemma that the Pharisees had constructed, and in so doing, establishing both the legitimacy of the state and the state's essential separation from the church. Well, next came the Sadducees in verses 18 to 27, who, unlike the Pharisees, did not accept the writings or the prophets of Scripture, but only the first five books of Moses. They did not, therefore, have a doctrine of resurrection, and they sought to discredit Jesus on that basis. So they, they constructed a hypothetical scenario that involved the issue of leveret marriage, And the scenario was designed to show that the notion of a future resurrection is absurd. But Jesus answered them with authority. He condemned them for knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he affirmed that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead and that it leads to an eternal state that is qualitatively different and infinitely better than the present one. So two disruptions, the first at the hands of the Pharisees, the second at the hands of the Sadducees, and Jesus deals with both brilliantly, sending his opponents away and simultaneously giving us, his disciples, instruction for how we might follow him in this world. We will see the same thing happening today in the third interaction. So we pick up in verse 28 where we are introduced to the scribes who are the official ordained experts in the Torah. Verse 28 reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked, Which commandment is most important of all? Now, To say that the scribe who questions Jesus in verse 28 is hostile, as were the Pharisees and the Sadducees of verses 13 to 27, would be inaccurate. Mark simply says that this scribe had come upon the dispute between Jesus and the Sadducees over the issue of resurrection, and he was impressed with Jesus' answer. I mean, not only did Jesus affirm the scribe's own belief in a future resurrection, but he answered with a rather brilliant use of Exodus 3.6. You remember Jesus quoted from Exodus 3 to say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Jesus was using the scribe's own domain and affirming the scribe's own belief. And so he was impressed with this Galilean rabbi. So we thought that he would ask Jesus' opinion on what was a frequent matter of scribal debate. That is, what is the greatest commandment in the whole of the law? The scribes debated this question endlessly. But this scribe, whom Jesus will say is not far from the kingdom of God, is certainly an exception to the rule. For Mark is clear that the scribes, as a group, as a whole, were very hostile to Jesus. You can see them um, surfacing as the opponents of Christ in Mark 3.22, Mark 7.1, Mark 8.31, 9.14, 10.33, and then later we'll see them having an integral role in 
the, the trial of Jesus and in handing Jesus over to be crucified. So the scribes were no friends of Jesus as a whole. This scribe in particular, however, seems to be different. He was not far from the kingdom of God by Jesus' own admission. But that Mark intends us to see the scribes as yet another opposition group alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, I think, clear from the context. It's clear from verses 35 to 37 where Jesus is going to specifically pick on the scribes for not understanding the divine nature of the Son of David. And it's clear from verses 38 to 40 where Jesus warns the crowds against emulating the scribes. So the scribes were hostile as a group. This scribe in particular was at least intrigued and impressed by Jesus. Well, Jesus responded to the scribe in a way that, to our knowledge, had never before been done. He took the command to love God from Deuteronomy 6 and the command to love our neighbor in Leviticus 19, and he combined them to summarize the entire substance of the law in a way that was new and brilliant. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, the first part of Jesus' answer comes from the Shema. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which was repeated each morning and every evening by every pious Jew in Israel. The Shema establishes the unique divine sovereignty of Israel's Jehovah God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And therefore, it establishes Jehovah's absolute claim over our entire beings, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 extends not only to Israel, but to the whole of the earth. If the Lord is the one true and living God, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 claims, then his claim over every human being, both Jew and Gentile, is absolute. This command, in other words, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength is incumbent upon all people in all places and at all times. God deserves and demands nothing less than that we, his creatures, would love him, honor him, trust him, obey him, and enjoy him perfectly with everything we are. So how are you doing with that? Have you kept that law? Well, Jesus goes on. The second part of his answer comes from Leviticus 19.18. See, if Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 deals with our vertical relationship to God, Leviticus 19.18 deals with our horizontal relationship with other people, with our neighbors. The commandment assumes that we love ourselves, right? We, nowhere does the Bible command us to love ourselves. We don't need to be commanded to love ourselves. We do that quite well enough as it is. And the commandment here to love your neighbor as you love yourself assumes that we have a healthy love for our own beings. Rather, what it does is it commands us to extend the same care and concern that we give for our own well-being to the well-beings of those around us. Together, these two commandments encompass the whole of life, our relationship to God and our relationship to man. And together, they express the totality of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 4, commanding the love for God, and commandments 5 through 10, commanding the love for neighbor. In other words, Jesus' answer is brilliant. It's perfect. And the scribe agrees. He even adds to Jesus' answer in such a way that reveals that he understands what Jesus means. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So I want you to notice what the scribe does here. To Deuteronomy 6, 4, right, the Lord is one, he adds Deuteronomy 4, 35, and there is no other besides him. And to the commands to love God with our whole beings and to love our neighbor as ourselves, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, the scribe adds another Old Testament concept that is right in keeping and in line with those first commandments, namely the idea that to love God and to obey him is better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That notion comes from several places in the Old Testament, from places like 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. It's also found in Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. So Jesus and the scribe are on the same wavelength when it comes to the sum and substance of the law. The sum of the law is to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love like this is to fulfill the law, much more than if you were to keep all of the offerings and all of the sacrifices and all of the feasts and all of the rituals with fastidious, rigorous detail. If you love like this, you have kept the law. Paul agrees, by the way, in the New Testament, in Romans 13.8 and Romans 13.10 and Galatians 5.14. To love God and to love others is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, Jesus commends the scribe for his wisdom, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the scribe understood. He understood the sum of the law. The law commands that we love God with our whole beings and that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The scribe understood that the law wasn't primarily about distinctions of clean and unclean. It wasn't primarily about burnt offerings and sacrifices. It wasn't primarily about feasts and festivals. The sum of the law is love for God and love for neighbor. He got this. And that is why, Jesus says, he was not far from the kingdom of God. He was much nearer to the kingdom of God than, say, the Pharisees who tithed their mint and dill and cumin but neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness, says Jesus in Matthew 23, 23. But I want you to note this very, very carefully. Watch this. Though the scribe was not far from the kingdom of God, Neither was he in the kingdom of God. For though he understood the sum of the law, he evidently did not yet understand the end of the law. The scribe needed to lead his mind and his heart and his soul one step further to the recognition, not only that God commands that he love him with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and that he love his neighbor as himself, but that he hadn't done that. This scribe had not loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for one moment of his life. And he had never in his life loved his neighbor as himself. 
You see, having recognized the liberating truth that the law was about love for God and love for neighbor and not about ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices, this scribe now needed to recognize the devastating truth that what the law demanded, he was utterly incapable of producing. See, not only had he not loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loved his neighbor as himself, he couldn't love God or love his neighbor as he ought. Love God and love neighbor is not good news for sinners. It is law. And that law will condemn us Because each and every one of us have failed to render to God what he is owed. We haven't loved God. We haven't loved others. Not like the Bible commands. Not with our whole beings. Not with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And furthermore, we can't. Sinners who are fundamentally at enmity with God, whose very natures are opposed to God's being and His righteousness and His holy presence, cannot love God. Paul says in Romans 8, 7, that the mind that is set on the flesh, okay, that's what your mind is by nature. If you haven't been born again, your mind is set on the flesh. And Paul's talking about you right here. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It hates Him. It does not love Him. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. What law? The law that says, love me more than you love anything else. And love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The mind set on the flesh that is hostile to God does not submit to that law. And look what he says here. Indeed, it cannot. It is not in you to keep God's law. Those who are in the flesh, therefore, cannot please God. In other words, understanding the law as commanding love for God and love for neighbor does not make the law easier to keep. It's not as if, oh, you know, whew, I don't have to keep all of those feasts and I don't have to remember all of those festival days and I don't have to remember exactly the right order in which to put the sacrifices and the, and the grain offerings and the, and the drink offerings. I don't have to remember all of those chapters of Leviticus. All I have to do is love God and love people. That is not easier than the external commandments of the law. Anyone who applies enough discipline can observe the feasts at the right time and can observe the festivals at the right time and can offer the sacrifices at the right time, but no man apart from rebirth and the indwelling Holy Spirit can love God as he ought. The law, therefore, is impossible to keep apart from the working of God's Spirit in regeneration and sanctification. This scribe had understood the law, but the law had not yet had its proper effect upon his heart. He had not yet discovered the end, the goal, the telos of the law, which is the righteousness of Christ received by faith Alone. You see, the only hope for ruined sinners who do not and cannot love God, ruined sinners who are infected by the disease of selfishness and self-love and self-worship, the only hope for people like us is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ who kept the law in our place, 
who kept the law in perfect righteousness, who loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength, and who loved neighbors as himself, indeed, more than himself, and who will give that perfect law-keeping righteousness to us freely as a gift received by faith. That's the point of the law. The law is intended to bring us to an end of ourselves, to bring us to the recognition that we can't do what it commands. We can't love God as we ought. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves. but that, praise God, Jesus has, and that he has in our place, and that his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping can be imputed to us by faith so that God will accept us on the basis of his righteousness, his law keeping. He will look at us as if we had loved him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength all of our lives. That's the good news of the gospel and the law is designed to drive us to that despair and to point us to that hope. This is precisely Paul's point in Galatians 3. Where he writes, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And in Romans 10, where Paul says concerning those Jews who were zealous for the law, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. How were they ignorant? They thought they could do it. They thought that they could keep the law. They thought they could produce the righteousness that God requires. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He is the law's goal and He is the law's conclusion. He is the end of of the law. And Christ is what this scribe, who could not love God perfectly with his whole being and could not love his neighbor as himself, needed most. True, this scribe had more knowledge to accompany his zeal than most of his scribal brethren. But if he wanted to enter into the kingdom rather than merely being near the kingdom, then he needed to recognize that he fell short of God's righteous requirement. And he needed to cast himself upon the mercy of God's righteous Son. And he needed to trust Christ for the righteousness which he himself lacked, the righteousness which he himself needed the righteousness which could justify him in the sight of a holy God. Oh, beloved, let us learn from the scribe this morning. Do you understand that the law of God is not a list of external rules of conduct? It is not a list of external rituals that can be kept in the power of the unregenerate flesh. Do you understand that keeping the law is not about going to church and being moral and doing religious things? Do you understand that what the law calls forth from you is a perfect affection for God and a selfless devotion for others? If you understand these things, then good. You are like the scribe. You get it. You are not far from the kingdom. But if this morning you would enter into the kingdom, then you must let that knowledge of God's law break you. You must let it shatter your confidence in your own ability. You must let it drive you to Christ, who is the law's end and goal. And you must 
be justified by faith in the free righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. And then, the most amazing thing happens. Then the Spirit of Christ, in accordance with the wonderful new covenant promise, will indwell your heart, and you will find within your heart, rising up, new affections for God and neighbor that you've never felt before. And you will begin to keep the law. Not perfectly, but purposefully and progressively for the very first time in your life. So come to Jesus this morning. Let the true knowledge of the law and its absolute demands upon your affections drive you to Christ. You can't keep it. Not in your own strength. So come to Jesus. Come for His mercy. Come for His righteousness. And come for His kingdom. According to Jesus, this scribe was closer to the kingdom than most of his order. Having a right understanding of the sum of the law. But there was an essential piece of knowledge that he lacked, as did the rest of the scribes. He could not have come to Christ as the end of the law, because he as yet did not conceive of the coming Messiah primarily as a law keeper, as a representative, as a divine mediator between God and man, as a Savior who is capable of saving him from the law's demands. This is Jesus' point in verses 35 to 37, where Jesus, having been on the defensive now, goes on the offensive against the scribes and against their deficient messianic theology. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was very leery of messianic labels because he didn't want to be associated with a deficient view of what the coming Messiah would be and what he would do. But now, just days before his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus attacks their deficient messianic theology head on. You see, the prevailing messianic theology of the day conceived of the coming Messiah as a son of David, a powerful, though entirely human, descendant of David who, like David, would destroy Israel's enemies and establish Israel's kingdom. This son of David messianic concept which dominated Jewish thought arose from Old Testament texts like 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, among others. And it's true. It's true that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and therefore would have the rightful claim to Israel's throne. But he's so much more. This political, nationalistic conception of the Messiah was insufficient. And to demonstrate this, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110.1, which was universally regarded to be a messianic text, which is why it is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. In Psalm 110.1, David, prophesying by the Holy Spirit, says that the Lord, Yahweh, said to David's Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So evidently, this coming Messiah of whom David speaks, who will come from David's own line, is also David's Lord. 
and will be seated at God's right hand. Of what kind of man could that possibly be true? What kind of man could be both a descendant of David and yet also David's Lord seated upon heaven's throne? Only a God-man. In other words, the Messiah must not only be David's son, he must be God's son. Now let me quickly tell you why this would have mattered to the particular scribe who was not far from the kingdom. If he understood the law correctly, that it required a perfect love for God and a selfless love for neighbor, and if that law had its intended effect upon his heart, that is, to bring him to an end of himself as he realized that he was a lawbreaker who could not fulfill the law's righteous demands, then he would have realized that he needed a very particular kind of Savior who could rescue him from the law's judgment and bring him into the everlasting kingdom of righteousness. He needed a divine Messiah who was righteous in himself and therefore capable of keeping the law as a representative. He needed a human Messiah, like him, who was capable of representing him and who could stand in his place in the judgment of God. He needed a Messiah whose mission was to bring salvation from sin and eternal life because his greatest problem was not that the Romans were in control of Jerusalem. His greatest problem was that he was a sinner under the judgment of God who lacked the righteousness that God required and therefore was under the sentence of the law's curse. So more than anything, this scribe needed the righteousness and the mercy of God given to him for his salvation. And the only Messiah who would be capable of providing that was a Messiah who was both God and man. As God, righteous in himself, capable of fulfilling the law, and as man, just like us, and capable of standing in our place and being our representative. If the law had its intended effect upon this scribe, then he would know that he didn't need the kind of Messiah that the scribes imagined. He needed the Messiah of Jeremiah 23, where Jeremiah prophesies, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, watch this, the Lord is our righteousness. Where does our righteousness come from? It's in the Lord. David's branch. David's son, God's son. The scribe's conception of the Messiah and his mission was too low. It's too earthbound. He is not a merely human Messiah intent on establishing a merely earthly kingdom. He is a divine human Messiah establishing a kingdom that is not of this world, an everlasting kingdom encompassing all of heaven and earth. He is David's son, and he is David's Lord, and he will sit upon his glorious throne at the right hand of God, and he is therefore capable of saving and justifying all who call upon him. That's the kind of Messiah the scribe needed, and that's the kind of Messiah that we need. Throughout Mark 12, reaching even back to Mark eleven twenty seven, Jesus has been sparring with the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He won every argument. 
He silenced all his opponents such that no one dared ask him any more questions. Verse 34. Well, watching and listening to all of these interactions were the class. The great throng of Jews in the temple, says verse 37, as well as Jesus' own disciples. And it is for their benefit, for our benefit, that Jesus says what he does next. And I believe Mark's purpose in putting these last two sections together is to show us once again the difference between the false religion of the scribes and the rest of the leaders of the Jews and the true faith of a poor, penniless widow. Verse 38, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. I find three truths in Jesus' words regarding false religion. Truth number one, false religion lives for the praise of men. You can tell whether your religion is true or false by whose opinion matters most to you. Jesus lists five ways in which the scribes' love of the praise of men was revealed. Number one, they loved wearing long white robes with tassels which distinguished them from the rest of the common people in their colored garments. Number two, they loved the deferential treatment they received in public when people would rise to their feet and greet them with honorific titles like rabbi or father or master. Number three, they loved sitting in the front of the synagogue with their backs to the chest that contained the scriptures and their faces to the congregation as if they were the guardians of the Torah. Number four, they loved sitting in the places of honor at feasts right next to the hosts. And number five, they made long, pretentious prayers so that all could hear just exactly how holy and how righteous and how devout they were. But their religion was all external. It was all for show. And it was all to receive the praise of men. And as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that was all the praise they would ever receive. Second truth, false religion lives for money. This is what is meant by devouring widows' houses. You see, scribes didn't receive a salary, per se. They lived off the generosity of the faithful. It was considered an act of piety in Israel to give to the financial support of a scribe. And the scribes would sometimes take advantage of that cultural notion to bilk the poor out of their savings, not unlike modern televangelists who prey upon the elderly. See, false religion and greed often go hand in hand. If you just follow the trail of money, eventually it will lead to a false teacher. Third, false teaching, false religion rather, is especially damning. Jesus says they will receive greater condemnation. Evidently, there is greater condemnation and there is lesser condemnation, just like you can be near the kingdom or you can be far from the kingdom. And the strictest judgment and the greatest penalty, the Bible says, are reserved for teachers, for those with greatest access to the truth. James Edwards comments, quote, Trafficking in piety for the purposes of self and greed incurs from Jesus an even sterner rebuke than his rebuke of hypocrisy in chapter 7. Religious pride and injury of others in the name of religion will be assessed, to quote the Greek literally, abundant judgment. Well, on the other hand, there is the poor widow whose True and sincere faith stands forever as the counterexample to the false and insincere religion of the scribes. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
And many rich people put in large sums. But a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The temple treasury was located in the court of the women, and it contained 13 trumpet-shaped, shofar-shaped receptacles in which worshipers could make various kinds of contributions to uh, designated offerings. Well, being the week of Passover, the temple was packed with, with pilgrims and worshipers, and the treasury bins were undoubtedly just ringing with coins. Well, Jesus sat down in an inconspicuous place opposite the treasury, and he just watched all of the bustle and all of the activity and all of the show. Many wealthy people put in large sums, but there was a poor widow who caught his attention. She put in only two small copper coins, Greek word is lepta, which accounts for one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which was equivalent to a day's wage. We're talking about a dollar or two in today's economy. This shows you how poor this woman was because Jesus says that's all she had. That's everything she had to live on. Well, from Jesus' words regarding the true faith of the widow, we can derive three counter-truths from those that we learned about false religion. So these are the opposites of those three truths about false religion. Three truths about true faith. Number one, true faith lives for the praise of God, not for the praise of men. See, in Contrast to the ostentatious piety of the scribes, which was performed for the benefit of everyone's observation, the only person who took note of this poor widow and what she gave was the Lord. And yet, his opinion and his commendation were all that mattered. This is a hallmark of true faith. It doesn't care about the praise of men. It has been set free from that slavery. And it lives for the praise of God. Second, true faith is displayed in generosity. I mean, what would prompt this woman to give away all that she had to live on? The only answer that can possibly be given is that she trusted God completely with her provision. She was not bound by the chains of greed. Her faith was not rooted in money. She trusted God and she loved God with her whole heart. And she wanted God to have all of her treasure. Because He was what she treasured most. Third, true faith saves. Jesus accounted her offering as greater than all of the others who contributed far more. Why? Because their offerings were but a reflection of their hearts. You see, God owned only a small percentage of their hearts and not even that. And therefore, they offered him only a small percentage of their wealth. But this woman loved God with her whole heart, her whole soul, her whole mind, her whole strength. And therefore, she gave of her whole wealth such as it was. And she was accepted before God on account of her faith. You know, we began this morning by looking at a scribe who was not far from the kingdom. He understood that the sum of the law was love. Love for God, love for neighbor. Not external morality or external rituals. But he had not yet arrived at the end of the law, which is Christ. The realization had not yet dawned upon his heart that he was incapable of giving to God what the law demanded, supreme affection for God and selfless love for neighbor. Therefore, he had not yet been driven by the law to Christ in order that he might be justified by faith 
in the words of Galatians 3.24. If this scribe wished to be in the kingdom and not merely near the kingdom, then he would need to admit his sin and his helplessness and his insufficiency, and he would need to cast himself upon the mercy of the Son of God and Son of David, who was sent to fulfill the law in his place and to give him a righteousness by which he would be accepted in the everlasting kingdom. That's what the poor widow had done with her true faith. And the Holy Spirit within her had so transformed her that she gladly and joyfully and faithfully gave to God all that she had. She was not just near the kingdom. She was in the kingdom. Now where are you? Where are you in relation to the kingdom? I beg of you this morning. Don't be like the scribe. Don't be content to be near the kingdom, still imagining that you can love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you can love your neighbor as yourself in the power of your own flesh. The call of this text to you this morning is to cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ recognize that you haven't kept the law for one moment of your life, neither are you even able to do so. But there is one who has kept the law perfectly in your place. He is Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David. And if you will cast yourself upon Him, if you will go to Him this morning, if you will cry out to Him in desperation and repentance, if you will say, not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands, these for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He will save you. He will remove the guilt of your sin. He will remove the stain of those long years of loving other things more than God and loving yourself more than everyone else. He will take that away. He will nail it to the cross and He will cover you in the robes of His very own righteousness. And you will be accepted in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So come to Jesus. Let him justify you, not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of his.